Again, the beginning of the Mindfulness Sutta, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, from which we take our instructions. In the first really exciting paragraph, this is the way. This is the way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of Nibbana, that is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. And what are the four? Here are the four. The meditator abides contemplating body as body, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings. He abides contemplating mind as mind. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. So I want to talk about ardency. I love that word. That's such a, um, it resonates with me tremendously. I don't know what the word is in Pali and whether the fact that it's uh, translated in the sutta as ardent is exactly the same sense that we have in English when we say ardent, whether it's maybe the translation by a British translator a hundred years ago, which is when I think these texts started to be translated into English. But ardency has a Um, the sense about it of passion. Um, It's such a romantic word. You think of lovers as being ardent. You say, so-and-so was a very ardent in his or her pursuit of the loved object. I've been um, listening to the opera, Così Fan Tutte, and one of the... uh, uh, arias that really appeals to me a lot is an ardent aria in which the singer says, I am prepared to die for this love. So I think to myself about the ardency that I feel about this practice. I think what really connected me to um, this kind of practice in this kind of way in my very first retreat was the sense of devotion that I felt. It's an interesting thing to feel. Sometimes people say, where is the bhakti in this practice? It's so quiet, nothing happens here. No bowing, no chanting, no praying, no singing, no touching, no nothing. It's dry. Where, in fact, is the bhakti? And I think this is the most bhakti practice of all. We are totally, day and night, praying for peace. This is the most devout kind of prayer practice I can think of. Quietly, each of us is praying for peace in our hearts through wisdom, through the cultivation of compassion. That's what we're doing here. We don't make a lot of joint sounds together like chanting, except in the evening some but you know what the most religious sound is for me here it always moves me 
Can you guess? It's the sound of the bell. I hear the bell, and without looking out, I know from all directions, people are once more converging back in this direction. And I think of us all as part of an ardent prayer community assembling once again to sit down and go back at that same project of converting the heart. It isn't really converting the heart to love, because I think actually that's the place of the heart. It's um, reestablishing the heart in its natural place of compassion and kindness and love. It's discovering what our natural selves are. In a sense, this is uh, the practice of, uh, it's a good religious word, we are reborn, we are born again into our natural selves. There, was a, there is a wonderful um, text um, called The Way of the Pilgrim about a Christian monk who's given the, um, he's given the teaching instruction, he's given the instruction to pray without ceasing. And this practice of mindfulness, I think, is a prayer without ceasing. It's the prayer for balance, the prayer for wisdom, the prayer for stability, the prayer for clarity, each in, in each moment, one after another. I think my excitement about practice, even before I knew what it was about, was because I felt in my, in my being such an ardency about it, so devout. I could look around and I could think there is something here that these folks want very badly. Just in the last two days, I read two, I read two different stories, which I, I'll, I'll tell them to you because they both move me. They're both a little different, but they're both about somebody who wanted something, some people who wanted something very badly. One of them is in this week's New Yorker, and there's a story about a woman who's now 44 years old who discovered when she was quite young, first of all, she's a very good swimmer. She learned to swim when she was three. She was very good at swimming, and she discovered that she could swim in quite cold water, that somehow her physiology managed cold water very well. And so she began to train for various cold water distance swims. And I think she was still a teenager, maybe 14 when she swam from Catalina Island over to the mainland. That's a substantial swim in cold water. And she said, I got out of the water and I thought to myself, the English Channel, I have to do the English Channel. And so in fact, she trained and swam the English Channel and the next and had a very good time, which someone else beat the next year. So she had to go back the year after to do a better time and in choppy seas so that she was thrown off course and had to get back. And actually, it came out to 10 miles longer than she was supposed to swim, but she did it. And subsequent to that, she swam the Bosporus. She swam Lake Titicaca from Peru to Bolivia. She swam around the Cape of Good Hope. Wherever there were places that people went to swim to get timed and for endurance, she did it. And the ultimate was swimming in Antarctica. So this is about swimming, and it's an article about swimming in, in, in Antarctica. And seriously, as I told you, I'm getting cold again. <laughs> I read this article. It was hard to read the other night. She was so cold. It is 33 degrees. That water, icebergs floated by her as she swam. 
And she took two years to practice, and she practiced daily, miles in the Pacific. She had all kinds of coaches, her father's a, a physician, so she had physiologists doing all kinds of experiments on her. She has some fantastic physiology. She put on weight, especially, so she'd be a little bit more padded. She grew her hair long so she could wad it up under her swim cap to keep in the heat. Every possible training technique. And she went with a whole team to Antarctica because you need a support team. And, and uh, what was exciting is that not only was she excited about doing it and spurred on by her team because of the last minute, she's a little frightened as well, but you can't not do it. But the team really wanted her to do it. And the day before her swim, she got in the water 33 degrees, but you have to jump in from a boat because it's not even land to land. You have to jump in from the boat and make it to shore. The day before she jumped in, did 10 minutes in the water and got out and didn't quite make the mile that she wanted to make. But she then thought, well, I can do it in the next day. And cold shook for hours after that. They had all devices for warming her up. And the following day, she in fact got in the water, swam 25 minutes in 33-degree water, icebergs floating by her, seriously. And at some point, all her boats going alongside of her, they, they gave her the sign that you've swum one mile. And she waved them off and made it to shore, which was 1.22 miles. And she said, at that point, I just needed to make it to shore. I knew I could do it. So I read it. And at the end, they, they said, why'd you have to do it? And she said, I just wanted to see how it is for the penguins. That, <laughs> you know, if there's something to do and you want to do it enough. So I thought to myself, I want to teach about ardency. And then right after that, I read in this month's Smithsonian Magazine, which I also love, an article about uh, many decades now, since the early 50s, 1952 was when the salt vaccine was uh, first um, perfected. And since then, there has been, through the World Health Organization, a tremendous move to eradicate polio from the earth to just get rid of the polio virus. And in this country, there are no cases of polio anymore. Everyone is vaccinated sufficiently, but there there just isn't polio anymore. We know people, I have friends, you do too, who are old enough probably to have post-polio syndrome or to be somehow still lame from polio because it was certainly a thing of my childhood. But since 1952, everyone is vaccinated. And in the whole world, mostly everyone is vaccinated. And there are some people who have been part of a delegation through the World Health Organization to eradicate polio, and they go every possible place. There's an article of them about them. Last year, uh, in Pakistan, there were 116 cases, second only to India, had a few more. But that's out of a billion people. It's mostly gone. And these health workers are all over the place in the most remote villages, finding everybody that they can possibly find, marking a P on the doors of places where they have vaccinated in the smallest villages, waiting in train stations for trains to go through in India, Pakistan, to get on and vaccinate babies that haven't been vaccinated yet. 
They're absolutely determined to eradicate polio from the world because it's a very strong virus. And if it's any of it left, it'll come back. So I think about what are we doing here and what do we want so ardently. I don't think that we're here because we want to be good meditators. I think sometimes people, for brief periods, think that because I, in, in interviews sometimes people say, I'm not doing it right. And the it is the technique of meditation. But we're really not here to become good breath noters or good mental noters or slow walkers or, <laughs> or pulmonary physiologists. This is not what it's about. I think we're here also on an eradication mission that what we're hoping to do really is to eradicate greed, hatred, and delusion. Really, the, the earliest scriptures talk about plucking out the defilements of the heart so that they do not arise again, so that there's nothing left of them. If there's anything left of them, they come back. And I've been thinking about it a lot last couple of days, thinking about talking about it, and thinking to myself, I wonder what my relationship has been to that. I, was, I remember learning about that early on, the end of greed and hatred and delusion. And then I've been thinking about my way of teaching it, which has usually been to say, you know, it's not been my experience that it ends. Uh, so maybe that's not what we want so much the end. Maybe what we want is a wise relationship to it. Maybe we want to notice the presence of greed or hatred and delusion. Want to see it when it's there. Want to be able to make a wise response to work around it, to know it, to recognize it, to not be misled by it. I think that would be great. But you know, the world is in such a difficult situation now. Not much more difficult than when you left. Um, people still talking. But really, I think to myself now, the end of greed and hatred and delusion, that would be great. Imagine a world free of greed or hatred or delusion. Free of suffering. The Buddha is frequently quoted as saying, I've come to teach one thing, one thing only. Come to teach about suffering, its causes and the end of suffering. This, our being here together, this is a laboratory for seeing the arising of suffering and the end of suffering. You sit and everything's okay and then something happens. Your body gets uncomfortable. One way or another something hurts or you're hungry, you're sleepy. Or something comes up in the mind, a memory or a thought, an anticipation. And the mind ties itself in a knot over what's happening. It's just what happened. And then the mind, extra, pursuant to the feeling, pursuant to the thought, struggles with it. It says, I didn't want this thought. I didn't want this feeling. I'm upset by this. And it struggles with it. It says, get out of here, thought. Get out of here, feeling. And then it suffers. Suffering happens. 
And then, by and by, the suffering ends. You get to see the arising of suffering and the passing away of suffering. We are each of us a laboratory. The Buddha said, in this very body is really the place of seeing the causes of suffering. This very body, the consciousness that operates through it, is the place for discovering the causes of suffering directly, knowing the causes in the end of suffering. Sometimes it ends through mindful awareness, through wisdom. There's the awareness, look what I'm doing. I'm taking what is just a plain experience, pleasant or unpleasant for sure, and I'm making it into a problem. We do that. We just do that. We have habits that cause us to struggle, to not recognize that we have a choice. We can either struggle with this or we can say, this is what's happening. I think we struggle a lot because something that's unpleasant, usually we struggle with what's unpleasant in the body or in the mind. And we do it because we really are strung neurologically, I think, to respond to pain with alarm. Body pain, mind pain. There's something in, the, in, the, in our DNA that says, uh-oh, I don't like this. Let me get out of here. Probably, uh, somebody said that perhaps last night in one of the talks or in one of them, that it's, it's one of our preservation uh, mechanisms. It's uh, a certain level good. But sometimes it's really important to notice, or often, always it's very important to notice, that that uh-oh is just a sign, uh-oh. And then to really look and see, is this really a scary thing? By the way, there's a whole book called Uh-Oh. Do you know that? It's written by Robert Fulgham, the same man who wrote everything that I needed to know I learned in the kindergarten. Wrote another book called Uh-Oh, which is just about the way in which the mind and body respond with alarm when anything that we didn't anticipate is happening. Uh-Oh. We make a story around the uh-oh, like the story is this will never end. Everything ends. But it doesn't feel like it in the middle of the sitting will never end. This discomfort, this pain, this memory of this sadness will never end. It ends. Everything ends. One of the hopes that we have here in our being here in this particular way is that day after day, hour after hour, experience after experience, seeing that each experience ends is that some, at some point, in some visceral, absolutely unshakable way, will be installed in us the knowledge that everything passes. The penultimate sentence in the Buddha's life, presumably, the le- next to the last sentence that he said, was transient are all conditioned things. So, one translation of it, we could also say everything that arises passes away. Everything changes, change happens, that is fundamental to our experience. You know, one of the reasons that we practice tranquility practice as much as we do, stay with the breath, keep a simple schedule, move slowly, don't complicate things, is that that's a way of calming down the nervous system so that we don't respond with so much of an uh-oh 
to everything that happens so that we're able to meet experiences with some more balance. Oh, look what's here. Oh, look what's here now. Okay, this is what's here now. Balance, bear attention. We can leave things alone more. Don't have to struggle with them so much. So sometimes the knots untie because we see them tying, and through wisdom we can untie them or stop tying, and then they just disappear. And sometimes the knots untie just accidentally. You've probably discovered that. They, they, by, by some sort of a grace, we get distracted from the knot. And there's something that that's uh, important to learn from that. I, I actually remember a tiny experience um, all around the possibility of a cookie that uh, was one of my earliest really deep understandings about how the mind works in this way to trick us into keeping the knot tied and suffering. I was sitting on a retreat in the early days of my retreat experience and as it happens to everyone my life was recapitulating itself on and off this particular strain of experiences and that particular train of thought and then sit a little bit more and then this particular thought and that. And on one particular day, some story about my life, truly I don't remember what it was, came up in my mind and I felt very sad about it. We all have in our memory banks all kinds of stories and many of them sad. It's heroic to be a person in a life and grow up. I mean, nobody has no memories that are sad and disappointing. So something came up in my mind. I felt really sad about it. And then I remembered something else that was on that same wavelength of sad, whatever it was. And I felt really worse. And then uh, something else came up on that same wavelength and something else, because that's not unusual of a certain, a certain track of thought. It might have been a time I was embarrassed about something. And I remember another time I was embarrassed and another time I was embarrassed. And they tend to unfold in my experience chronologically, working back from now. And then something happens now that's embarrassing. I remember the one before and before and before and before and before and before and before. And by the end of the afternoon, I was quite done in, um, really so absorbed in my sadness, really feeling very badly. And I'd been feeling quite good, and I was disappointed that I was feeling badly. And actually, I think it's, it's part of what happens as we look at the contents of our minds and hearts. We all of us come with this whole memory bank that I think waits for a chance to present itself to us to look at so that we can rest a little easier with it. So by the end of the afternoon, I was really so unhappy. And I uh, got up finally from this last sitting in the afternoon and I thought, I can't even think anymore. I'm so distraught. I'll just go to my room and have a shower. That's what I need is a shower, a nice hot shower. I'll feel better. I was really quite absorbed in my own misery and pain. And I started down the road, I remember exactly where I was, on my way to take a shower to cure my misery. And uh, the bell rang for tea. And uh, I had the momentary thought, I guess because I was evaluating at that point, should I go for the shower or go for the tea? 
I thought, I wonder if they're going to have cookies for tea. Sometimes they have cookies. And it's, I had the thought, I wonder if they're going to have cookies. And just the thought of a cookie arose in my mind and the possibility that I might go to the tea and have a cookie. And what was important for me is that in the moment of thinking, I wonder if they're going to have cookies for tea, there was no misery. <laughs> and the misery had been huge. It had filled up my whole entire mind with misery. And I realized it's a bubble. It's a bubble. It's made out of air. It's nothing. It's empty. It's a really serious insight into the absolutely emptiness of things and the way in which, empty or not, they trigger habits that, that cause the mind to knot itself up into a knot. And all of a sudden, gone. Doesn't mean that the mind doesn't knot up in knots again and again and again. But that was such an insight. Whoa. And I think really the beginning of a real fascination with how is it that we keep getting stuck in suffering? We None of us want to suffer. I thought of it for a long time after that as the break in the clouds opportunity. I took my children out of school one whole winter and we went up to... Uh, Tahoe and uh, stayed in, uh, and we're going to ski all winter. We had this great plan. Every day we were going to ski. It was a monumentally snowy day, winter. And so most days we'd get up, it'd be very overcast, or it'd be snowing. And I'd say, let's not go today because it, the weather's, we'll wait till tomorrow, we'll wait till tomorrow, we'll wait till tomorrow. We'll do homework that we took with us. So they would have much rather been skiing than doing the homework. And it was snowing and snowing and snowing. And so they'd be looking out the window and they'd say, Mom, there's a break in the clouds. Look, there's a break in the clouds. And it meant let's get out of here <laughs> and stop the suffering and go out and ski. So I, I thought of that moment as a break in the clouds moment. I can get out of here and stop suffering and do something else. Now the truth is that you can't always get out of the suffering once and for all. You know that. Uh, Sally spoke the other night. It's such a good metaphor about sometimes we, we have a hot coal in our hands and we forget that one possibility is putting it down. Um, some of the pains in our life, it's not, it's, it's not that easy really to put them down and walk away forever. They come back. They land up in your hand again a little bit later after they get looked at. They have to get examined, they have to get seen, they have to get healed, really. But at least the awareness that I can put it down for a little bit, that it's not absolutely stuck here forever, that I get a choice, that the mind, at least if it can't say, you know what, I'm letting go, can say, I'm not ready to do that right now. Come back later, or I'll see you later, or I'll see you around right now. I need a little bit calm, I need a little bit composure, I need a rest. And what we practice here in this combination, this really extraordinary combination of tranquility and insight practice, is we keep practicing really developing the continuity and heart to be able to see clearly, this is what's here, this is painful. I can either look at it now and explore it, and maybe come to some peace with it, or I can say, not now, another time. I'm not ready for you now. 
I think this is tremendously, for me, gave me so much um, faith and really courage that I could look at the stuff in my heart. If I didn't have to look at it every single second, if I got the option of saying, come back later, or I'll see you tomorrow or some other time. That's a tremendous freedom. It doesn't have to be all gone, just not to, not to be held hostage by, my whole, uh, the, by the contents of my heart and all of my memory bank. They're not nothing, those hot coals. Whatever they are, the memories that are difficult, maybe empty and insubstantial, but they leave an impact and they make certain habits of startle in the mind and the heart. And what we're really addressing here is those habits. We're really looking at them in, in, with kindness, with care, with compassion, which is what mindfulness and metta both are. I think that's what we're trying to do here so ardently. That is what we want to do. That is our job. could say about what we're doing here is we're doing, we're looking for the end of suffering through wisdom and the flowering of natural compassion through the return of the heart to its natural place. It's two ways of saying mindfulness and metta practice is what we're doing here. I think they're inextricably part of one another. I don't think there's any way to end suffering without understanding it, seeing it, really getting to see that it's the very fabric of this world, of this existence. To be in form is to suffer. Everything changes. Nothing lasts. It's not possible, incarnate, to stay comfortable. Dukkha, the first noble truth, It's all dukkha. It means really that everything is insubstantial, changing, unreliable as a source of continuing satisfaction. It doesn't mean that life isn't extraordinary and interesting, often beautiful and astounding. It just means it's really hard that from the beginning on, We are obligated to keep adjusting to change. It's very hard. It's like being on a rocky floor. You have to keep yourself balanced all the time. Really discovering that, in fact, the second noble truth, that to struggle with experience that's way beyond how we can control it, is to create suffering extra to the pain in life, suffering that's the response of the tight mind around it rather than the allowing of it. Sometimes say the second noble truth is uh, the cause of um, the cause of suffering is clinging, tanha, craving, actually. But actually, I, I 
I, I don't think of it as the cause of suffering. I think it is suffering. That to crave is to suffer. It's already suffering. Sounds like you crave now and you suffer later. But the act of craving is painful. It is suffering. And think about the word surrender, which is a very religious word, really. I surrender. And think about surrendering to what's way beyond our possibility of not only controlling, but comprehending. I think of it as a lovely religious word, not like capitulation, which is done grudgingly, but surrender as one would to a lover, to the lawfulness of the Dharma, to the truth of karma, lovingly and wholeheartedly out of wisdom, out of appreciation, out of awe, really. As really very simple, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who we've all been talking about, who's a wonderful friend and teacher to all of us, was teaching a teacher's retreat here a year or two ago. And I, uh, I so appreciated his teaching style. He really teaches by telling what's his process as he's teaching. And talked about uh, how he's, his response to uh, difficult experiences as they come up in his life and his mind and his body as they do in everyone's. And he said, I say to myself, it's like this. And he does this little gesture with his hand. I've been trying to really perfect it, you know, because it was such a transmission of wisdom to me to look at him and have him say, it's like this, and get it that that means it's like this. That's what it is. I told that to somebody uh, somewhere this fall, and they said, that looks like um, the gesture of teenagers when they say whatever. And uh, I, you know, I'm not sure, well, you know, maybe it's whatever. Sometimes teenagers, my sense is that the whatever is a little bit of a distancing indifference to what you had to say. but. Uh, so I would like to say, whatever, in the most, you know, back to the lover simile, whatever. You know, that way more than I can imagine struggling with it, whatever. So odd, really, when you think about it, that life is so difficult and we want more of it. We want it to be different. Do you remember the first line of Annie Hall, even before the credits? Uh, you hear voiceover of Woody Allen saying, uh, they're re- presenting the picture of two women sitting on the porch of a hotel, complaining about the hotel. And uh, one of them saying to the other, the food in this hotel is so bad. And the other one says, yes, and such small portions. <laughs> and, uh, That's really how we are. We just keep wanting more. The Buddha, said, uh, the Buddha said this wonderful thing. He said, everything that is dear to us causes pain. And it's true. You know, I don't like to teach that to people who have just come to Buddhism the first minute because it sounds like such a dreary thing. But in fact, it's true. Everything that is dear to us causes pain because we worry about it and we, we, we fear for it and we don't want to lose it and we might. 
and we surely will unless it loses us first, that, you know, falling in love is a really a big problem. And we all want to do it. And mostly all want to do it. We're looking for trouble, really, but we keep on doing it because we're human and we want company and we want companionship, most of us. Even friends, not even falling in love, taking on a special friend and caring about them. Caring is a big problem because we really will feel pain on behalf of other people. It's really fine, it's wonderful. It is the doorway to the cultivation of compassion. I think it's wonderful that we do that and want that. If any of us were offered a pill and someone said, here, take this pill, you won't need any, you won't want or need any close relationships. Nothing will be dear to you. We would never take that pill, I think. We want dearness, knowing that we'll be in pain. Something actually to learn about. One of my grandsons, um, one of my grandsons is currently going through a rather difficult developmental patch. It happens in growing up. He'll be fine in the end. And his parents are really struggling and hanging in with him. He's actually finer, so you don't need to worry about that. But uh, I was talking to my daughter. I talked to her a lot about the day-to-day. And she says, you know, Nobody tells you this when you get pregnant. Everybody says, congratulations, great. Is that nobody tells you you have just now mortgaged your whole life and to this particular other person that you don't even know yet and taken it on. It's a vast collusion by all of those other people to not let you know. And of course, you wouldn't trade it for anything. That's the other big problem with it. So the question is, how is what we're doing here, how does what we are doing here, this mindfulness practice and this metta practice, which I think are just the same in a different form anyway, lead to the end of suffering and the flowering of compassion? I think we're all doing both. You know, There are some people here who are doing dedicated metta practice, but I think we are all doing both all the time whether or not we are doing dedicated metta practice and whether or not we think we're doing mindfulness practice. I don't think we can do either without the other being present, if not in a classic form, present as a spirit in which we practice. To practice mindfulness is really to practice metta or its... um, Loving kindness or loving kindness in its guise as compassion towards yourself. To really meet every moment as a friend. Come in. Well, I didn't know you were coming to visit, but okay, you're here too. And you're here too. Okay. I realize that, you know, uh, we have a, a room three. You may not have been up in the room three as an interview room unless you were seeing me. But... Um, it's more like an office in the other rooms, and it has a computer there. And so sometimes we write talks on the computer or whatever. And I realized yesterday that uh, I could be sitting at the computer, and uh, the door behind me will open. And I know it's one of my colleagues, and I don't startle at all. You know, someone comes in, and I say hello, and I'm just doing my thing, and I don't know who it is. But I'm quite content 
that whoever is entering is a friend. And I don't have to look up. I say hello, and then a voice will say hello. And I say, oh, hello, Sally, or hello, Howie, or whatever, because I'll recognize the voice. And I had that, uh, an instant hit of how it is to feel amongst friends or safe so that anything can come in and you don't have to check out what it is. And say, okay, I am safe enough right here in my place that anything can come in. I don't have to be on the lookout for it. It's all all right. And I thought it's a very good metaphor for how we might be practicing mindfulness. Just sit down, to be vigilant. Uh, oh, what's coming, what's coming? I feel okay, but what, what if this? Just whatever's coming, okay. It's going to come and visit, and it will leave. And it'll come and visit, and it will leave. Everything will come, and everything will leave. Actually, everything will come and everything will leave is a fundamental insight that I think is really the key to becoming able to be in this life with a little bit more ease and a little bit less fear. To be able to have that sense, I can watch, I can feel, I can know what's here and what's leaving without being afraid is an important part of why there's so much emphasis on tranquility practice. I come back to the breath, make it simple, don't complicate your schedule. Someone asked a question this morning, again, um, about uh, sequential moments of mindfulness and it not being the same object. And I just really want to repeat what James said about the, the, the fact that sequential moments of mindful attention create the same tranquility in the heart that sequential moments of attention on the same object do. It's a different way, but really all the time that we are doing here, sequentially moments of balanced attention connecting with the object, if it's the same one, or if it's a separate one. Really continue the process of deepening um, concentration, deepening calm and tranquility. Everything about being here, if you use the whole of what's available, the structure, the meals, the place, the, the, the formula for sit now, walk now, sit now, walk now, get up now. Don't have to make a single plan. Just keep it simple and do it. In metta practice, for those people who are doing it, the metta practice of repetition of phrases produces concentration and tranquility. Repetition of balanced attention produces it as well. It's also not possible to practice metta without being mindful. It's not about being a phrase machine. It's about noticing what happens as you make those intentions, what comes up in your heart, where you struggle, with whom you struggle. It's really a way of of, uh, inviting into your life all the people in your life, near and far, known and unknown, and watching, feeling, knowing how your heart responds 
it's really a huge wisdom practice, metta. I really did not appreciate when I began doing it, which I really did in order to calm my mind and my heart from a place of a lot of agitation. And I thought it would be a very good practice for calming, which it is. I had no idea of how much of a wisdom practice it would be. It's completely a template for seeing the contents of my art, and very valuable. Noticing the response, it requires moment-to-moment attention. I think however we approach it through metta, through mindfulness, we are eventually waking up to what are the fundamental truths of the world, of existence, that craving and struggling is suffering, that the end of suffering is possible, that one thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, leads to another thing, and that everything changes. We will see that in either practice. And we're also seeing the contents of our heart in either practice. And the whole of our history. I have the the kind of um, a vision that our hearts are all waiting for our minds to settle down. This okay, it'll settle down now. Okay, here's this to look at. Now, why don't you look at this? There's a certain way. I used to say to people when I uh, I would go to retreat, and uh, I was not able when my children were still at home or young to go away for very long periods of time. But I, I would fit a lot of retreats in as frequently as I could during the year. And my sense was that practice continues on or off retreat. And I'd often have the feeling, and I would say to people when I was coming on retreat, and it had been three months or five months since I'd been, i say, you know, I feel like I was just here yesterday. And really, I've just gone home and done my laundry and come back. And uh, But actually, I, I thought about it today, and I thought, actually, it's here that I come to do the laundry. At home, I go home and launder the clothes, and here we are all taking our hearts to the laundry in a, in a deliberate way. We're trying to really wash out from them all of the traces of habits that get us caught in greed and aversion, hatred, and delusion. Imagine a soap suds that says, gets out greed, hatred, and delusion. Maybe you could think of a name for that particular soap suds. Probably the name is Mindfulness and Metta. But I don't know if it would sell. It's not that catchy of a term in the supermarket. So here we are doing this ardent, ongoing prayer for peace. Based really on the faith that it'll work. One of the lines that I love hearing is the line of... Uh, Attributed to the Buddha, in which he presumably said, I would not ask you to do this if it wasn't possible. Somehow, I believe that. I think it's possible. So here's a tiny story just in the way of ending. Yesterday, and about struggling and craving and clinging, yesterday morning, uh, you probably noticed I wasn't here because on Wednesday mornings I teach in the lower hall. And um, I, uh, yesterday morning, just picked up a book of Rumi and um, for whatever it was that I was teaching about yesterday morning, I read a particular poem by Rumi 
called Don't Sleep. And it's about the urgency of staying awake. Just don't sleep. And so it has probably eight or ten verses, and each of them ends with the injunction, don't sleep. And by the time you finish, and I, I assure you I read it with every amount of dramatic fervor that I could, by the end of the time you feel such an urgency about don't miss a moment, stay awake, don't miss your life, pay attention, don't sleep. So today, as I was assembling this talk, I went down to the lower hall because I'd picked it up from the bookstore and then I'd put it back in the bookstore. So I went down to get the book. It wasn't there. So I looked all over and I found some of the people who worked down there and I said, where is the back stacks of this book? And well, they're renovating the bookstore and I had them open the closets and I was back in the closets. And at some point I said, I think I am actually quite attached to, to getting that, <laughs> that poem. And they had to go off and do work. I said, it's okay, you go do the work, and I'm rummaging in the closets. And then I said, listen, I think I am really too attached to it. I'm going to have to do it without the poem. I only want that one line. Anyway, don't sleep. <laughs> and I'll just tell about the line, don't sleep. And it's gone. I, I think actually I read the poem with such urgency that People bought the book, and it's all gone. <laughs> so instead, I uh, made a decision to read two other things. One of them is um, a piece of um, Psalm 1, as it has been translated in a Zen tradition by um, our good friend and colleague, uh, Norman Fisher, and uh, well, I don't have to explain it to you. This is half of Psalm 1. I particularly went and looked for it because um, I wanted, I, I remembered that it has an image of a tree and it's standing firm. And I thought about the way in which bear attention and presence and ardency and devotion means staying right here and being really, really dedicated. This is half of someone. Happy is the one who walks otherwise than in the manner of the heedless, who stands otherwise than in the way of the twisted, who does not sit in the seat of the scornful, but finds delight in the loveliness of things and lives by that pattern all day and all night. For this one is like a tree planted near a stream that gives forth strong fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither and whose branches spread wide. And then I thought I would end with the very last passage in a book called In This Very Life by Sayadaw Upandita. Many of us studied with Sayadaw Upandita at one time or another. I'm just remembering now, I, uh, I love that phrase, and it has, it, it, it's at, actually echoes in the Buddhist tradition, just uh, remembering in this very moment that there's quite a wonderful interchange in a book called uh, The Asian Journal of Thomas Merton between Merton and uh, a Tibetan Lama that he met in the journey that he made to Asia in... Uh, 
in the very journey in which he was killed in an accident, um, the very wonderful treatise of a, a very wonderful journal of spiritual um, honesty. But in this account of his meeting with this particular Lama, which for a long time was my favorite all-time account in any book of any spiritual dialogue, the two of them met and through an interpreter talked about their deepest spiritual experiences. And it was so clear that even through an interpreter, they could describe to each other mind states and heart states that they had both experienced and talk about the different names in their different traditions that they called that stage, that state, and that they liked each other very much. And at the end of that particular account, Thomas Merton says, the Lama said to me, he thought we were both very advanced uh, journeyers and that we would probably reach the end of the journey, really make it in our next lives. And he said, and I said to him, let's try really hard to make it in this very life. So I love that title, In This Very Life. Let's try really hard to make it in this very life. This is the last paragraph of Upandita's In This Very Life. Faith has a great influence on one's consciousness. That is why it's a controlling faculty. With faith, there can be effort. Faith arouses motivation and practice and becomes the basis for all other dharmas, like concentration and wisdom. When the Buddha first revealed the Noble Eightfold Path, he set the controlling faculties into motion. This view of dharmas was set rolling in the hearts of beings, and thereby true freedom and happiness came within reach. May your faith in the practice be sincere and profound. May this be the basis for your attainment of ultimate liberation. That's it. May your faith in the practice be sincere and profound. May this be the basis for your attainment of ultimate liberation. Thank you very much. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 6, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.